Lord, unclutter our lives. Give us space, simplicity, and thankful hearts. God, we've come up now to the time where we worship you through the preached word. And so, God, our prayer this morning is that you would guide us by your word and your spirit. That in your light, we may see light. And Father, in your truth, may we find wisdom. And in your will, discover your peace. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on this Lord's Day, we begin a new sermon series called This We Believe. This series, beloved, is a study and exploration of the Bridge Church's statement of faith. And at this point, you may be asking yourself, why is this important? I find that to be a wonderful question. I think it is important for us to explore and study our statement of faith because our statement of faith affirms our collective convictions. And I remind you what one of my professors once said, that a belief is something that you'll argue for, but a conviction is something you will die for. So these statements affirm our convictions. But not only do they affirm our convictions, but they unite us in faith. Thirdly, our statement of faith also declares our identity. Not only is this we believe, but this is who we are. Our statement of faith distinguishes us from other false religions and false teachings. It distinguishes us from some denominations and even some other churches who may not be Bible-believing, gospel-declaring churches. But finally, we want to explore our statement of faith because you need to know what you believe and why you believe as well. Any statement of faith or creed that's worth its salt begins with God. We have a God-centered theology. Beloved, what comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thought we could ever have. Tell me what a person or church thinks about God and I can tell you much about them. So then, what is it that we as the Bridge Church believe about God? I encourage you now to read and recite this section of our statement of faith with me. Let's read together. We believe in one God Creator of all things, 
holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. So this morning, I want us to to begin our study of God with the beginning, the book of beginnings, Genesis. Find Genesis chapter 1. This one should be a little easier to find because it's the first book of Holy Writ. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's how it reads. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God. From those four words, we have a ton of theology. In the beginning, God. The first thing that we can observe from just those four words of the Bible is that God exists. Beloved, we believe that God is real. And if I were back at my home church right now, somebody would say, yes, he's real. Real in my soul. Yes, God is real, for I can feel him. So God is real. Beloved, here's the truth about this statement. Everyone has a theology of God. Everyone has a theology of God. We we believe that God exists. The atheist theology about God is that God does not exist. The atheist says there is no God, for which the Bible has something to say even about the atheist. The Bible declares in Psalm 14 verse 1 that the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. This is strong language by the psalmist. The psalmist clearly says that it is both foolish and ignorant not to believe in the existence of God. But here at the Bridge Church, we are not atheists. We believe that our God is real. The the, the Bible in here, in these four words, the Bible never uh, 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 declares or, 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 or gives a reason for the existence of God. The Bible never gives us proof for the existence of God. It just assumes his existence. It, 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 it just declares that God is. But yet, 
We have to ask ourselves, what is the biblical proof though? Is there any proof of the existence of God? As believers, we accept the truth of God's existence by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must, here it is, believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we, we, we believe that God exists by faith. Now to be clear though, this faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is based on reliable information. Can I share some of that reliable information with you? Good. First of all, we have the reliable information, what theologians call special revelation. Special revelation. Special revelation refers to information that is disclosed by God at definite times and definite places to definite people. That's what makes it special. Let me give you some of special revelation. Jesus is special revelation. John chapter 1 verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is special revelation. And according to this verse we just read, Jesus reveals the Father. And as I've told you before, if we wanted to make that 2020 language, Jesus is the selfie of God. If God were to take a picture of himself, it would come out as Jesus. This, this, this thought is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 2, which says that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the special revelation. And this son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he also created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature and opposed the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the ultimate special revelation of God. How can we know God? Through Jesus. So Jesus is proof that God is real. So, so our faith is based on the reliable information of special revelation, but not only special revelation, but also natural or general revelation. Natural or general revelation refers to information disclosed by God to all people at all times in all places. The premier, the primary form of general revelation is creation itself. Here, here's what Psalm 19 and 1 says about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 20, the apostle Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, them the unrighteous, because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without 
excuse. Beloved, what all people in all places, all we have to do to know that God exists is to just look around. Look at creation, the sun, the moon, the stars. Look, look, look at the mountains in the valleys. Look at how the sun rises and the sun sets. Look at how God has, has, has perfectly placed the earth. And all we have to do is see creation and know that there must be a creator. And we know that creator to be God. One of the proofs for God's, one of the rational proofs for God's existence is called the, is called the cosmological argument. It, it argues that every existing thing in the world must have an inadequate cause. So it's an argument of cause and effect. So, so then the argument goes like this. If the universe exists, then the universe must have an adequate cause. In other words, if the world exists, then something or someone had to cause it. As Christians, we believe that the cause of the world is God. But then, and, 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 but there become, there's a hole in our argument, though. If everything has a cause, the logical question is, what caused God? This is a perfectly logical question. Here's the answer. God is the uncaused cause. Nothing calls God because there is nothing greater than God. This brings me to something else about the existence of God from these first four words in the beginning, God. What we learn is that God exists, here it is, independently. God exists independently. When we say God exists independently, we simply mean that God exists on his own. He does not depend on anything outside himself for existence. God needs nothing to sustain himself. This is what the Paul preached at Areopagus in Acts chapter 17 verse 25 when he said that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so we believe in the self-existence of God. He exists all on his own and there is nothing God needs from us. And beloved, as I've told you before, this, this deals, this squashes some of the, 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 the reasons for why man was created. Some have argued that God created, the, created humans because uh, he was lonely. False. Fake news. He is self-existent. God was never lonely. He didn't need you to feel any void or defect in himself because there is no void or defect in him. God could have continued to exist all on his own and been perfectly satisfied. He's self-existent. Well, why does this matter? Because I don't want y'all to think I'm just trying to show off that I know a little bit. Beloved, if God did not exist on his own, then there would be some power greater than God. And if there was some power greater than God, he would no longer be God. 
he would be less than God. And so these four words, in the beginning, God teaches us that God exists and that he exists independently. But these four words also teaches us, they teach us that God exists eternally. God exists eternally. Notice what the text says. It's right there in the text. In the beginning, God. Which means that before there was, in the beginning, there was God. Here's how Moses put it when he wrote pen Psalm number 90, verses 1 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting, to everlasting, you are God. Beloved, when we say that God is eternal, we mean that God always was, God always is, and God always will be. Beloved, there was no point in time that God was not. God has no beginning and God has no end. He is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. God does... The God being eternal means that God doesn't age or mature. God, God never has to worry about gray hair. He doesn't age. He can't age because God is not bound by time. He cannot be bound by time because he created time. God is not going to be a servant to time. Time serves him. So because God exists eternally and does not age, that means that there can be no change in God. He doesn't become more knowledgeable, more interesting, more wise. He, his personality does not evolve. That's impossible with God. God is not like wine. He doesn't get better with age. He has always been what he is, and he will always be what he is. God exists independently. God exists eternally. But these first three verses also teach us that God exists in Trinity. We serve a triune God. One God, three persons. Where do you see that? Well, let's look. Verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that this speaks of God the Father. But look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the, here it is, Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we find another member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But then there's one more. Look at verse 3. And God said. So the third member, another member of the Godhead is the Word of God, who we know to be Jesus Christ. This is how John said it in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Listen at that creation language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
And he even goes on to say, and this was the light. This is all creation language. So from the very beginning, Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, it affirms the, this doctrine of God who exists in Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this is not the only place we see evidence of the Trinity. And our wonderful great commission that I often say to you all, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, says, go therefore, this is Jesus. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, here it is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So even Jesus believed in the Trinity. The Apostle Paul also believed in the Trinity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, Paul ends with this doxology. That the grace of, here it is, the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Not only did Jesus and Paul believe in the Trinity, but also did the Apostle Peter. We just finished studying the, the first uh, letter of Peter. First Peter chapter 1 verse 2, he says, after saying that he's writing to sojourners and exiles, he says, I'm writing you according to the foreknowledge of, here it is, God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. So we see clearly that there is ample evidence in Scripture that the Trinity is a very sound and biblical doctrine. Now, let's make sure we understand some essential truths about the, the Trinity. First, each of the persons of the Trinity are distinct persons. They are their own person. Each member of the Godhead possesses intellect, emotion, and will, thus making them a person. Though there are three distinct persons in the Trinity, we only serve one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same being. They have the same essence and the same nature. But they have different roles within the Godhead. Imagine that. God, even in the Trinity, having different roles. Maybe we could say it like this. They complement one another. Here's how the Athanasian Creed captures the truth of the Trinity. I'm just going to allow Athanasius to, to, to preach for us for a moment. He says, now this is the Catholic faith. Remember, when we talk about Catholic faith, we're not talking about Roman Catholicism. We're referring to the, that word literally means universal. Here is the faith of the universal church. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. 
The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet they're not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually is both God and Lord. So Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers, there is one son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. That boy could preach. And so, various truth of the Trinity. So, we learn, first of all, just from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, that God exists. But I will tell you that if you ever really want to be amazed of an exposition of God, read Isaiah chapter number 40. That's where I want us to turn. Isaiah chapter number 40. By the way, I study, there is no way for our study this morning to be exhaustive. We're talking about God. <laughs> so I want to share a few more things and then we'll be done. Give me a few more minutes. Isaiah chapter number 40. And I want us to, we'll read or, or study 12 through 26. And I won't do an exposition of, of this word by word, line by line. I just want to take some of the themes that hi, that's highlighted here about God. The first thing, the main thing that we learn in Isaiah chapter number 40 is that God is incomparable. And he is incomparably great. We'll see that here in Isaiah chapter 40, that God is great. When we speak of the greatness of God, I'm referring to his majesty and his grandeur. God is in a class in which he is the only member. Verse 12, verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 40. Here's how it reads. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Beloved, this verse all on, it, on its own highlights the greatness of God. 
Here's what he says. He says, when we consider the billions and trillions of gallons of water on the earth, only God is able to measure them perfectly, watch this, in the hollow of his hand. Then the verse asks this question, who has marked off the heavens with a span? Okay, this, watch this. A span is the distance between your index finger and your thumb. And so what he says here is that all it, that's all it takes for God to measure the heavens. Only God can contain the dust of the earth in a standard measuring device. And all of the questions here in verse 12 about who can, who can, there's only one answer. God. God, beloved, is indeed great. When we speak of the greatness of God, we, must, we are also referring to the infinity of God. By infinity, we mean that that God has no limits, no measures, no bounds, and no constraints. When I say God is infinite, I mean his power has no limits. His knowledge has no bounds. His wisdom has no end, and space cannot contain him. And beloved, that's why we must join the psalmist in crying out, great is the Lord and greatly. To be praised. So we learn that God is incomparably great, but God is also incomparably wise. It's here in our text. Our text teases out the wisdom of God. In verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, it's teased out there. We learn that God doesn't need consultants He doesn't need instructors or advisors to govern the world. Now, when we we talk about the wisdom of God, we we must realize that there is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is acquired through the study of information. Wisdom, however, is the practical application of knowledge. See, you can be knowledgeable but not wise. You can have a PhD and still be a fool. And an uneducated man can be superior to a scholar in wisdom. So what we learn is that God is an all-wise God. When we speak of the wisdom of God, we're referring to that perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to attain his purposes in a way that glorifies him the most. In other words, when God acts, he acts in light of all the facts and the correct values. God never makes a decision and has to change his mind. God God never needs additional information. God never makes a bad decision. Let me push that. God doesn't even make good decisions. Because God is all wise, he can only make the best decisions. Beloved, what comfort this must be for us. That the God we serve only does what's best and never makes mistakes. This kind of God can be trusted. 
To an all-wise God, we, we can entrust our lives. To an all-wise God, we can go to him in prayer knowing that however he answers is the wisest decision. So God is incomparably great. God is incomparably wise. But beloved, God is just simply incomparable. <laughs> there is no one like God. None can compare. The text says in verses 18 through 19 that idols can't compare to God because they are made with human hands. In other words, he says idols can't be greater than God. They can't compare to God because they are caused by somebody else. And we've already said that God is uncaused. He exists on his own, so he is greater than even idols. In addition, the text says that these idols are overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains, which implies that for idols, value has to be added to them by somebody else. Idols don't have inherent worth. Their worth is post-existence. Not so with our God. Our God is glorious by nature. With idols, they, have, uh, they come to being at some point in time. But our God is not like that. He is eternal. God is in incomparable also in his transcendence. I'm coming. By transcendence, we mean that God is distinct, separate from, and independent of all nature and humanity. God is distinct, separate from, and independent of all nature and humanity. In other words, God is superior to his creation. We see this idea of God's transcendence in verse 22. Look, look at verse 22 with me. Here's what it says. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The Bible oftentimes uses distance to communicate how different and how unique God is from creation. God sits in the highest place on the highest throne and is far away from creation. He is unique. Or like y'all said this morning, there's nobody like him. In, in what ways is God transcendent? I'm glad you asked. He's transcendent in his thoughts and ways. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is transcendent in thoughts and ways, but he's also transcendent in space. He, 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 he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Here's how the psalmist said it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Love it. 
when I was reading this, all I could think about is it would be idiotic to play hide and go seek with God. Because wherever you hide, he's there. So let me share with you some implications of the transcendence of God. First of all, God is the highest good. Humans are not the highest good. God is. And what gives us value is that we have been created in his image. God is also incomprehensible. We can never know God exhaustively. He's infinite. He's without limits. He's infinite in power, presence, knowledge, wisdom, grace, love, and mercy. It's impossible for us to know him exhaustively. We are finite. Thus, our minds can't possibly conceive all there is to know about God. Though we can't know God exhaustively, there's good news. We can know him sufficiently to worship him, and to be his treasured possession. Finally, God is also incomparable in eminence. Transcendence and eminence go together. When I, if transcendence speaks to God's farness from creation, eminence speaks to God's nearness to his creation. God's eminence means that he is very present and active within the world. That's what the prophet is mentioning or, or when he's in verses 25 through 26. Look at it. Verse 25 through 26. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The prophet now draws out attention to God's very involvement in creation. He brings out the host by number, and the host referred to the stars in heaven. And the fact that he brings them out by number and calls them all by name means that he knows every part of his creation. And because he knows every part of his creation, we, we can deduce then that God is actively involved in creation. God didn't create the universe and leave it to manage itself. God not only created the universe, but he sustains the universe by the word of the power of his son. So we see God's eminence playing out even right now as as doctors and uh, heal the sick, do medicines and surgeries. That's God's eminence, him being involved. God's eminence is at play even when we love one another by providing to those in need. God is incomparably transcendent and eminent. All right, I'm done. But you got one more question for me that I need to answer. How then should we respond to this God? The response is actually, we got to go back to Isaiah 40, verse number 9. Here's what it says. Go up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Ju Judah, here it is, behold your God. That word behold, it just means to see. 
Beloved, now that we've learned a little bit about our God, we need to just simply behold our God. We need to turn our gaze upon this great God. And what a timely word in the midst of this pandemic. Beloved, even now, we ought to just turn our gaze upon God because he is greater, more powerful than any virus. He's above everything. If you're sick, behold your God. If you're worried this morning, behold your God. If you're anxious, behold your God. If your marriage is crumbling, both of you need to behold your God. If you're struggling to worship God passionately and genuinely, behold your God. If your finances are low or depleted, behold your God. If you're depressed and downtrodden this morning, behold your God. If, if, if you're discouraged, behold your God. There is nobody like our God. Turn your gaze upon him this morning and see that he is greater bigger than anything that has you bound. Behold your God, but also we must, we should be in awe of this God. We need to daily stand amazed at his power, his glory, and his majesty. We should be in awe of his creation. We should always be able to say and to sing, how great thou art. Thirdly, we ought to respond to this God by just simply getting to know God. As I said earlier, though God is incomprehensible, he can still be known. He has made himself known through his own self-revelation. He's revealed himself through creation. He's revealed himself through Holy Scripture. And ultimately, we know him through Jesus, his son. So, beloved, we need to know our God. Jesus said this in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Finally, we respond by loving this God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We've said here at the, the British church that the profile of a fully devoted follower of Christ is one that loves God supremely and loves God exclusively. To love God supremely means that we love him above all else. To love God supremely means that he's our first love. He's above our boo and our babies. He's our first love. To love God exclusively means that we renounce every idol in our life. To love God exclusively means we are devoted to him. He alone is worthy of our devotion and worship. But it needs to be made known that the only way we can truly love God properly and rightly 
is through Jesus. We cannot love God properly and rightly until we are on right terms with God. And beloved, on our own, we are all on hostile terms with God. We are sinners that have rebelled against God. And what we deserve is God's wrath, judgment, and punishment. What we deserve is eternal damnation. But this God is so loving. He's infinitely loving that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die our death, was buried and rose victoriously from the grave bright early Sunday morning so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And beloved, when we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for forgiveness of sins based on his substitutionary death, burial, and victorious resurrection, we can then be on right terms with God. Only then can we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. So friend, if you haven't responded to the gospel, we, we plead with you this morning to put all of your trust and confidence in Christ alone. Beloved, behold your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. This was by your own volition that you did this, not because we deserved it or were worthy. And so, God, we stand amazed and in awe of who you are. God, help us to continually be in awe of you and let that awe lead us to worship you, to bow down before you, to adore you. God, we must confess in this moment that we have not been in all of you as we should. We've brought you down to our level and thus made ourselves almost equal with you. So we pray for your forgiveness and your mercy. God, for that person now who needs to know you in a saving way, Holy Spirit, move in their hearts, convince them of their sinfulness, so that they come crying, what must I do to be saved? And they hear clearly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray. Amen. Beloved, as we said earlier, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always until the end of the earth. Have a good week. Go in peace.